a thousand shiny new parts, and one rather worn one, written and narrated by Edison McDaniels, a production of SurgicalFiction.com. But in God's name, Jeremy Taven, the surgeon, looked aghast into the open chest before him. His first thought was that whatever he was looking at, he'd never seen anything like it. His next thought was how bad a sign that was, considering he had been a heart surgeon for going on 20 years. He was decidedly not accustomed to seeing something he did not recognize once he incised flesh and cranked the ribs apart. A moment before, he had discovered the sack containing the heart to be tight as the proverbial drum. This itself had not been a surprise. All the man's vitals and tests in the ER had pointed to this, to pericardial tamponade, to the heart suddenly not being able to fill and pump the blood necessary to sustain life. But it wasn't just taut. It was translucent. He could see through the damn thing, like looking into a dirty glass jar. And inside that jar, scrunched up to conform to every last contour and millimeter of space, was what looked for all the world like an eyeball. Chavin's assistant, a surgical resident named Creasy, cranked the rib spreader a final notch. Fully cranked now, it created a wide chasm in the left side of the chest. The lung periodically lapsed into view, then dropped away again. The two men stared at the eyeball in the depths of that chasm. Can't be, Chavin said. It's just the way the tissues are folded, creating the illusion of an eye. Creasy, who had been holding his breath, gulped audibly. Did it just blink? Don't be an idiot, Creasy. It's not an eye. But whatever it is, it can't stay there. It's got to come out now. Do you think that's a good idea? Creasy asked, his voice breaking. He had never questioned his senior surgeon before. It's killing him, Creasy. Do you really suggest we just leave it there? It's just that, well... Well, what? Spin it out, doctor. I'm curious what's on your mind. Creasy took a deep breath, then replied, It's just that I, that I think it's looking at us, sir. Maybe we should call ophthalmology, Dr. Chavin said, eyeballing his assistant over his mask. I think it just blinked again, sir. The only thing blinking in here is your intelligence, son. Pay attention. But, sir... Knife. The surgeon's deft hand touched the sharp edge of the blade to the sack surrounding his patient's heart. Like an erupting pressure cooker, half of the man's chest blew apart in an aerosolized morass of bone, blood, and sinew. The eyeball thing instantly sprang out of its lair deep in that chest, uncoiling what Creasy could only credit as a tail. He saw this only in passing, though, was thrust backwards away from the surgical table and onto the floor by the force of the blowout. He shrugged his head lost awareness briefly, and when he regained himself, he could only look on with horror. He lay on his side. The world canted crazily around him. The others lay in their own bruised flesh around the room, not moving, or perhaps not daring to move. Across the room, on the far side of the surgical table, Creasy watched with growing apprehension as the gowned and gloved body against the wall spasmed, its arms and legs jerking in a disconcerted, ugly dance. The fried leather boots on the feet, polished in blood, quivered with a nauseating gusto. Something was piled on the dancing man's chest, 
an irregular lump of skin, teeth, and an eyeball. He rose on an elbow. The thing suddenly tumbled off its perch and turned. It was the eyeball. It looked smaller now, had been replaced in large degree by a huge, horrid set of teeth. The two were part and parcel of some mad idea of a face, a single eye above and a row of grinning teeth under it. Below that rictus of repulsion was a short neck and a horribly blunted chest with only one shoulder and a stunted, deformed arm coming out of it. No legs, nothing at all below that abbreviated chest. As Creasy watched, the eye grew big again, and those teeth receded a degree, red slime dripping off them. That single, stunted arm reached out, and the several twisted fingers at the end of it grabbed a patch of floor and pulled itself along the tile towards the doctor. Creasy screamed. Five minutes before. Put him down hard, now, Creasy hollered to the anesthesiologist as they rolled the patient into the OR. Chavin's on his way. They hadn't had time even to do a scan. As his team positioned the man on the table, Creasy called up the only imaging he had. On the computer screen, an x-ray of the man's chest appeared. It looked like a photo negative, the various shadows of his ribs and lungs appearing as variegated shades of gray and white. Dr. Chavin arrived as Creasy was examining the image. What are you seeing? Creasy hesitated, his eyes sinking to Chavin's fry-leather boots. They were, as always, polished to a mere shine. The surgeon took it as a badge of honor how he never so much as spilled a single drop of blood on those boots as he worked. They were no doubt meant to intimidate, which they did. Creasy regained himself and pointed to a large white shadow in the middle of the chest x-ray in the lower half of the image. This seems too large for a normal heart. I agree, the cardiac surgeon said. Any history of trauma, son? None I'm aware of. Well, either he's ruptured something, unlikely, I think, he'd be dead already, or it's a tumor. What about this here? Greasy pointed at several dense white dots within the oversized heart shadow. What about it, son? Looks like a bit of bone, not uncommon in a developing tumor. Abnormal development, you know. It didn't look like bone to Creasy. True, bone on x-ray produced a dense shadow, but these shadows were too dense. Only one thing could produce a shadow like that, Creasy thought, but didn't say, since he didn't want to sound crazy, that they had to be teeth. There is one other thing, sir. Javen, not a patient man, said, Well? You have to see it, sir. Javen stared hard at the resident his overgrown and bushy gray eyebrows nearly as intimidating as his boots. I don't like riddles, son. It's his chest, sir. The skin? Creasy pointed to the man on the table. He now had a tube down his throat and the ventilator was breathing for him. His chest moved up and down better than it had a moment before. As a tech cut the man's hospital gown away, several of those in the room gasped. That's a hell of a scar, Javen allowed. Yes, sir. I thought maybe it was a burn scar, but I don't think so. Looks kind of like it, maybe. Too organized, though. Burn scars are more disorganized, Chavin said. It does look ugly, sir. Christ, Creasy, is that your professional opinion? I just thought you should see it, sir. Before we cut, do you know what kind of scar it is, sir? Chavin ran his eyes over the man's chest. The question irritated him. He didn't like to be questioned especially when he didn't know the answer. 
I have no goddamn idea. Now, if it's okay with you, let's save this man's life. Two hours before. I can't breathe, the man said, trying again to sit up on the gurney. Please, Mr. Bingham, lie still. But I can't breathe. All evidence to the contrary. If you really couldn't breathe, you wouldn't be able to talk. So just lie still another moment. I have to adjust the electrodes. The tech at the bedside wasn't even looking at Mr. Bingham. He was looking at Mr. Bingham's chest, or rather the skin over that chest. He was having a difficult time making the electrode stick because of that nasty-looking scar, which was right over the spot he needed to record from. A burn scar, he supposed, though only because of how much real estate it took up and how some parts were heaped up and thick and other parts thin and mottled. Looks like you've been through hell, mister. He frowned and peeled the adhesive from yet another of the sticky electrodes and tried again. The tech worked in the EKG lab, where they made those little squiggly line tracings of the electrical activity of the heart. He'd done roughly a thousand such EKGs, and though he had learned enough over the years to recognize what was normal and what wasn't, this one baffled him. He couldn't exactly say it wasn't normal. The tracing had all the requisite parts. The squiggles went up where they should and came down where he thought they should. And in just the right sort of proportions, the tech thought, still, the tracing bothered him. It looked almost as if, but he was no doctor, so he was just guessing here, almost as if there were two hearts beating in that chest. Physically impossible, of course. Had to be an artifact of the tracing. That was why he kept repositioning the electrodes. That, and the fact the little electrode pads wouldn't stick to that scar for more than a minute or so. That was weird enough. But weirder still was how, no matter how he rearranged those little pads, it couldn't get rid of that damn doubling artifact. Mr. Bingham began to writhe anxiously. The tech glanced his way. Had he been that dusky looking a minute ago? Back in a jiffy, Mr. Uh, he checked the order form. Mr. Bingham. Mr. Bingham said nothing, just waved a hand dismissively, or frantically, perhaps. It depended on how one chose to interpret that flapping hand, but he most decidedly did not say anything. The tech wheeled his little EKG machine out of the cubicle and strolled over to the nursing station. The nurses were busy, and he had to wait several minutes before he was able to gain the attention of one. He showed her the EKG. She looked at it, nodded nonchalantly, and said she'd pass it along to the doctor. She just wanted to get one more set of vitals first. A half hour later, she went to get those vitals. She found Mr. Bingham breathing with difficulty. Laboriously is what she typed in the computer. He was responsive, however, though the look in his eyes did get her attention. Fear, she thought. He's afraid. She had seen fear in the eyes of patients before. Most people had no idea about the inner workings of their body. Fear when it wasn't working as expected was not uncommon. Mr. Bingham, are you okay? He opened his mouth as if to say something. He said nothing. She sighed. She reviewed the record. Mr. Bingham had apparently checked himself into the ER a few hours before, had walked in under his own power during the shift before hers. She looked at him. He didn't look as if he could do much walking just now. He vomited. She turned him up on his side, made sure he wouldn't choke. She wiped his mouth and took a new set of vitals. He might have a stomach virus, she thought, but she didn't like how his vitals were trending. His blood pressure was too low. Not deathly low, but low-ish. His heart rate was too high. In fact, 
His heart rate was so high, she was pretty certain the monitors were picking up each beat twice. She had seen that a time or two in the past, too. She pulled his gown aside, thinking to check those electrode pads. Perhaps the tech had misplaced them. She gasped when she saw the nasty scar on his chest. It spanned the lower part of his chest, over the breastbone, with a large, ugly-looking piece extending to where his left nipple... Well, he had no left nipple. Ick. That was it, she decided. That's why that scar looked so awful. His left nipple, the muscle and the breast tissue under it, were gone. She had never seen such a scar before, could not imagine what it costed. Breast cancer? Rare, but it sometimes did strike men too, she supposed. She tried adjusting the electrodes. They stuck with difficulty, but no matter what she did, the rate remained too high. Maybe that scarred skin was more conductive than normal skin, allowed the pads to pick up too much of his heart's electrical impulse. Mother of a scar, she murmured. Even so, she decided to have the doctor look in on him sooner rather than later. Something clearly wasn't right. Nearly another half hour passed before the ER intern saw Mr. Bingham. To her credit, she immediately identified he was an extremist. His breathing was now severely labored, his blood pressure half of what it should have been, and his heart rate, well, she wasn't certain. She tried counting the pulse, but it had become irregular and didn't match the monitor at all. She thought maybe he had developed electromechanical dissociation. But if that was true, why was he still alive? The intern had done as well as anyone in cardiovascular physiology, or How the Heart Works 101. A synchronized electrical impulse goes out through the muscled heart. The muscle contracts and mechanically forces the blood within down the long pipes of the body, the arteries and veins, to the brain, kidneys, liver, etc., if the electrical impulse somehow becomes separated from the mechanical pumping, a so-called electrical-mechanical dissociation, the heart can't pump blood to sustain life. Put another way, if each electrical impulse isn't followed by a mechanical squeeze, the beat and heartbeat, there is no life. Except that Mr. Bingham was still alive, which could only mean one thing. The heartbeat and the electrical impulse were still associated as one which left exactly one possibility. Mr. Bingham was in pericardial tamponade. His heart could still pump, and the electrical impulse were still there, but something was preventing the heart from squeezing. No squeezing, no pumping. Oh, my God! Get Dr. Creasy on the phone, now! Mr. Bingham had just become a surgical emergency. One week before. Charlie Bingham was getting too old for this. He knew this, but he loved the game and couldn't bring himself to give it up. He hadn't been able to play ball as a kid. The docs had told him it was too physically strenuous and his body too frail. His mother had been more direct. She had told him it would kill him. So it was only as an adult he had taken up baseball. Now, with the season drawing to a close and his 35th birthday approaching, he supposed this just might be his last game. He wasn't exactly old, but he was oldish. There was a reason professional athletes retired in their mid to late thirties. They knew when the gig was up. This felt very much like the gig was up to Charlie. He had paid attention to his body all his life. He had been born old, he imagined. His body ached more than most, though of course that idea was impossible to put into words others could understand. His chest ached most of all. The old scar, he'd had it as long as he'd had any skin at all 
had always been raw, but now it was more than raw. There was a gnawing, bone deep, down where you couldn't get to it. Some days it seemed as if there was actually something scratching at him from the inside. That wasn't true, of course, but some days it sure as hell seemed true. More and more, he had to give in to that gnawing. His chest had always slowed him down, made him old before his time. His father had once told him he was like a new car off the assembly line, with a thousand shiny new parts, and one rather worn-down one. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link, his father had said, and for you, that weak link is in there. He had touched Charlie's scar then, which act Charlie had remembered because folks rarely touched his scar. They didn't want to, and he didn't let them. It was hypersensitive, like touching an open wound. Plus, it gave him the willies, just as if someone was not just touching him, but reaching into him. He'd long ago learned to bandage his chest in an ace wrap so even his clothing wouldn't rub the spot. Very few folks had ever even seen his scar. Time to quit while he was ahead. Maybe he would even see a doctor. His wife, God rest her soul, had wanted him to do that for years. Once or twice, in the months following her death three years ago, he had nearly gone. But without her, he didn't have the strength. He went to work every day at the same accounting firm he'd worked at since college and played baseball. That was his life. He had these thoughts somewhere in the back of his mind as he approached the plate for what he knew must surely be his final at-bat of the season. As always, he looked over to the bleachers, to the spot next to the dugout where Megan had routinely sat. She wasn't there now, of course, but he looked all the same. He was a creature of habit. He walked up to the plate and surveyed the infield. A runner on second, one out, his team down by a run. He took a few practice swings, the pain in his chest not bad at the moment. Swinging the bat was ever the single act he could do that didn't pain him. Mind over matter, perhaps. He had a momentary image of knocking the ball over the fence, a home run. He hadn't hit a homer in two years. He doubted he was going to hit one today, but he could dream, right? That's what baseball was, after all. A game for men to pretend they were boys and to dream of glory under the golden sun amid the smell of cut grass and spring honeysuckle. If only. Charlie stepped into the batter's box and stared into the pitcher's eyes. The man had a bushy beard and a wad of chew the size of a small car in one cheek. He stretched, and his arm came around and the ball zinged past Charlie and hit the catcher's glove with a thump that resounded with satisfaction even to Charlie. Charlie hadn't swung on purpose. He'd wanted to hear that sound. He loved that sound and knew he wouldn't hear it the same from the bleachers or even the dugout. He stepped out of the batter's box. Right-handed, he raised his left arm with a bat in it and pointed out to the field, grinned at the pitcher. He stepped back into the box and the pitcher glared back at him or maybe at the catcher. Charlie couldn't really tell. The man on the mound nodded and went into his windup, a fastball that whined toward home. Charlie turned to swing, but in the same instant saw the pitch was curving inside and tried to step back out of the way. The ball struck him in the lower chest, just to the left of his breastbone. To Charlie, it felt as if that ball had entered him. It struck his scar dead center, and a wave of pain rippled out across his insides like a pebble rippling a pond. Only this pond was full of lava, hot lava. Charlie went to ground, burning down like a wooden man lit from the inside out. He was a long time catching his breath, blowing out the heat with long, irregular panting, like a dog. His skin color paled and blued, and folks wanted to call an ambulance. 
I just need a moment. Charlie rasped out between breaths. He put a hand up to show he was good. That hand tremored, but nobody said anything. Nobody called an ambulance. He tried to get up, wanted to take his place on first base, but he was too unsteady, had to be helped to the dugout. Sitting on that bench, the terrible hotness of that ball entering his chest gradually waned, though what replaced it was hardly better. That old gnawing sensation came back, only with a vengeance he had never felt before. Right there, deep in his chest, it felt just as if something was trying to get out. Trying to claw its way out, actually, if he was being honest. Maybe he would see a doctor. Thirty-five years before. After 42 hours of non-progressive labor, they cut her. The baby within slid out, easy at first, showing his buttocks to the world. Then he, it was a boy, seemed to rethink this birthing thing and hung up on something. The doctor pushed his own arm in alongside the baby, ran his hand along the partially born infant's front side. I'll be goddamned. This here little fella's got a playmate, the doctor said. You mean, the beleaguered mother, who was awake, managed to smile. Twin. Before he could complete his statement, Whatever words the doctor had been about to say disappeared in a whirl of abject pity. I'm just damn sorry, Carolyn, the doctor said later. He explained how Charlie was fine, but attached to his front side, to his lower chest to be precise, was a twin. It's called a parasite, a parasitic twin, I'm afraid, on account of it not being able to survive on its own. I want to see him, Carolyn said. All right. I'll have the nurse take you around directly. But I have to warn you, well, you'll see it pretty. But we can fix this. We can remove the, he almost said parasite again, but caught himself. The twin. Charlie will be good as new. I promise you. Her first look at Charlie, they had whisked him away from the delivery suite without so much as a passing glimpse, showed a healthy enough looking baby face and two tiny arms with fisted hands sticking above the loose blanket. It was only when they pulled the blanket away that she saw it. The parasite, that's what the doctor had called it, was more than a lump of flesh, but not so much as a fully formed person. The thing was damn close to fully formed, though. A tiny torso with just one arm and two normal legs stuck to Charlie's left chest at the nipple. As if the little guy, yes, he had a penis too, she realized, had buried his head in one arm in his brother's chest. Well-developed, perhaps but repulsive, too. A monster, Carolyn thought. The doctor was right in his first words. Parasite. The word itself was repulsive, like insect. She had given birth to an insect. She wanted it gone. There will be a scar, of course. We'll try to limit it, but unfortunately this, this thing is rather broadly attached. Might even have to skin graft. I don't care about all that. Just promise me you won't hurt Charlie. Well, there's very little chance of that. All we really have to do is shave the twin off, so to speak. These things rarely go too deep below the skin. A little bone and gristle, maybe, but anything we leave behind won't be a problem. He spoke just as if he knew what he was talking about, as if he saw these things every day. And for 35 years, the doctor was mostly right. Now. Creasy screamed. No more than a minute had passed since this nightmare had exploded upon them, but Creasy had grown old in the interval. She could hardly move. The eyeball thing, 
its teeth now hidden behind a lurid grin under a single eye the size of a tennis ball, pulled itself along the floor one arm length at a time. Jesus Christ, Creasy thought. It only has one arm. Then he seemed to glitch in his own thinking, like a software reset. My God, it has an arm. He looked past the creature to Chavin. The old man was still quivering on the floor behind the operating table. Sitting up further, Creasy saw a deep crimson spot spreading across Chavin's chest. A piece of bone stuck out amid the carnage there. Chavin had broken a rib, probably punctured a lung, definitely punctured an artery. Creasy realized he had to do something or Chavin would bleed out in another few minutes. He turned to the others present, but like himself, they looked shell-shocked. Besides, he alone had the skills that might save the older surgeon. The eyeball thing moved, but not quickly. As Creasy watched, the single large black pupil seemed to enlarge still further, to take in that room, to take in them. He's as worried about us as we are about him, Creasy said sotto voce. Chavin gurgled. Time was life, Creasy realized. In another minute, two or three at the most, Chavin would breathe his last. Creasy didn't much like the man, but he respected the doctor the man had become. He had to do something. He stood, cautiously but quickly made his way around the table. All the eyes in the room, including the only one that really worried him, followed him as he went. The eyeball thing began to retrace its path back towards the quivering man on the floor. Creasy stared at the creature a moment. That thing was repulsive. It didn't belong out here, not amongst them. It was as ugly as anything he'd ever seen, ever imagined. It was mesmerizing in how it moved, insect-like. Javen gurgled again, and this broke the hold the eyeball thing had on Creasy. Creasy could only handle one emergency at a time. He had learned this the hard way, triaging the knife and gun club night in and night out in the ER. He triaged now. He knelt, surveyed Chavin's wounds. It was a rib, all right, and it stuck out just to the left of Chavin's breastbone. But it wasn't Chavin's own rib. The heart surgeon had been impaled by the blown-out rib of his own patient. And from the amount of blood present, the rib had impaled the heart surgeon's own heart. Creasy knew he had to plug the hole in that heart, and right now. He glanced about, picked the scalpel up off the floor beside Chavin's polished boot, Without another thought, he incised the flesh on the left side of Chavin's chest, enlarging the hole around the protruding rib until he could get his hand in beside the impaling piece of bone. With his other hand, he extracted that rib, pulled it from where it had punctured the heart within that chest. Greasy felt Chavin's heart trying hard to pump, the fist-sized organ working frantically to squeeze then pump, squeeze then pump, squeeze then pump, but every time it squeezed, the blood squirted out the hole the rib had torn in the heart. Greasy his entire hand now inside that chest, struggled to plug the hole with his own finger before it was too late, but he couldn't quite do it. The hole was elusive, the heart slippery under his fingers. In that instant, the eyeball thing suddenly slithered up onto Chavin's chest, wrapping his twisted fingers around Creasy's arm where it entered that wounded chest. Creasy, who had lost track of the creature in his obsession to save the surgeon, opened his mouth to scream. He had thought the eyeball thing looked repulsive, but the feel of the thing against his own skin was another order of magnitude more hideous. Impossibly cold, like touching a refrigerated corpse, Creasy thought. It took his breath away, his voice with it. On the instant, the eyeball thing yanked, Creasy's hand came free of Chavin's body, and the creature disappeared through that hole 
and into Chavin's broken chest just as if that chest had slurped it up. Greasy still had the knife. He picked it up, was about to swipe again at that tortured wound, enlarge it perhaps until he could get both hands in there, when that goddamn eyeball suddenly appeared looking out from behind Chavin's ribs. It was huge and looked all the bigger because the skin around that wound had suddenly turned translucent, allowing Creasy to look with abject horror at the goings-on within that rib cage. One of those twisted fingers found the hole in Chavin's heart and plugged it. The single arm then twisted itself snake-like, bonelessly, Creasy thought, around that heart, cradling it. The teeth appeared, almost mocking in their grin, and rolled to a position behind Chavin's heart. It opened impossibly wide. Maybe they chomped, maybe they didn't. Creasy couldn't see them anymore. The eyeball itself blinked, or seemed to anyway, and then sunk away, pulling the hole in the surgeon's chest closed and turning the skin opaque again. Javen stopped quivering, and his breathing stabilized a moment later. Creasy slumped back against the wall. He looked up at the dead man on the table, could see the gaping hole that had once been that man's chest. The room itself looked as if an axe murder had taken place. Creasy looked back at Javen. The man's color was returning. He reached across and felt for a pulse at the wrist. It was rapid. Too rapid, Creasy thought, thinking in the next moment that it was about double what it should have been. For the moment, he decided that would have to do. This is Edison McDaniels. You've been listening to a special presentation of surgicalfiction.com. If you have enjoyed this, Consider leaving a review, and don't hesitate to tell your friends about us, and subscribe. Also, remember that I am an audiobook narrator. You can find many of the books I've narrated on Audible, searching under my name, Edison McDaniels. <laughs>